And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the Skype line with us again is Dr. Peter Hammond. Peter, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Thank you so much, Dan. Great to be back with Redeemer Broadcasting. Peter, remind the listeners the ministry that you have been led to start and that you head up. Well, Frontline Fellowship, we're celebrating 40 years this year. It was uh, in April 1982 that I first crossed the border into communist war-torn Mozambique uh, for our first cross-border mission to a restricted access area. And since then, I've been on, whoa, over 140 different missions behind mm-hmm. enemy lines, helping persecuted churches. And that's involved working in 38 countries, involved in eight wars and three revolutions, and uh, I just praise God we're still alive and our missions yes. succeeded in delivering hundreds of thousands of Bibles and New Testaments throughout Africa in something like a hundred different languages. And we've set up schools and Bible colleges and some clinics. And uh, every year we're distributing over a hundred tons of Bibles and books uh, completely free uh, to people in multiple languages across Africa. So we're based in Cape Town and we work all the way throughout Africa. It's remarkable. I praise God, and we praise God for for what he's doing there. Um, You've seen um, some rough situations. You mentioned the war-torn areas, and uh, there's a lot of communism uh, that has expressed itself. Um, Sometimes uh, Christians and Christian churches are attacked, and um, there's various ways, I guess, that it's handled and the response and that sort of thing. Sometimes the Christian, um, based on the circumstances, uh, just lays down and takes it, and and the enemy slices him, uh, spills his blood, and and the Christian dies a martyr for the glory of God. There's other times when it's appropriate to defend oneself, and so uh, we. We often talk about the martyrs. In fact, we carry Voice of the Martyrs as a program on Sunday, and um, one of our programs often mentions about a minute or two every morning how God is working in these very rough areas and people are being hurt and killed. Um, Is there ever a defense against the enemies as they come in seeking to destroy families, destroy life? Uh, Peter, let's talk about that today a little bit. Yes, certainly. It, it certainly needs to be so. And, um, well, for example, on the 25th of July, 1993, in Cape Town, just a couple of blocks down the road, in the same road where our mission headquarters was, St. James Church of England was attacked by terrorists. And uh, the congregation, a large congregation, which was the largest evangelical congregation in Cape Town at that time, St. James Church of England. And in burst to the evening worship service, while I was singing a hymn of worship, a group of terrorists, Upla terrorists, uh, uh, supported by and trained by Libya's Gaddafi, amongst others, and they opened fire with automatic weapons, hurtled hand grenades in the midst of the congregation. And one of our missionaries was there, a good friend of ours, and he is my deputy director at the time, Schalf and Vake, and uh, he drew his 38 revolver, Snubnose 38 revolver, and fired back and wounded one of the terrorists was spraying the congregation with machine gun fire at the open double doors. 
uh, over a tremendous distance. I mean, just something like maybe 50 meters, 50 yards away. Wow. Um, and uh, which is a very hard target to hit at that distance. And under that stress, he managed to wound the terrorist. And as a result, they broke off the engagement and fled. Now, in a few seconds that it took, uh, 11 people were killed and 55 were injured. Some of them seriously crippled, like legs blown off and so on. Oh. And the, the death toll could have been a lot higher. There were 1,400 in the congregation. And uh, Charles' prompt action within something like six, seven seconds of, of the attack being initiated saved a lot of lives because there were four terrorists inside. There, there, were, there was another one who was the driver outside. So of the five terrorists, four were armed with fully automatic weapons, each with four to five magazines of ammunition and with four to five grenades. And the grenades had nails strapped around them for extra oh shrapnel impact. And two grenades were thrown and one clip of ammunition was fired before they received return fire and then they fled. Now, uh, the uh, situation would have been a lot worse had not uh, several people made tremendous sacrifice. I mean, one, a 17-year-old Richard O'Kill died instantly by fling himself across his two young friends, Lisa and Bonnie, to shield him from the line of fire. Oh. And 21-year-old Jared Harker, leapt upon a hand grenade that landed in the middle of the aisle, which obviously was going to threaten a lot of people on both sides of the aisle. And he took and absorbed the full blast of the grenade in his body to protect the lives of the people around him. And there's no doubt that if it wasn't for Jared Harker and Charles Van Beek, who who epitomized two different ways uh, of of, uh, saving lives, and they both did what they could with what they had, the the death toll would have been a lot more, uh, including... The fact that the terrorists intended to barricade the doors and throw firebombs inside, petrol bombs, uh, uh, to burn people alive inside the church and shoot anyone who tried to escape. Yes. So, uh, and they then planned to go on to another church, Christ Church, just down the road, not even a kilometer away, which is another very large evangelical church, and they were going to uh, attack them as well. But because they received resistance at the one, they they broke off and they fled. And so... And as the police commissioner gave Charles a public commendation that he had saved hundreds of lives by his prompt, courageous action, and of course, Jared Hawk with his selfless sacrifice of his life for others, this was a tragedy. This was very traumatic, but it could have been vastly worse had it not been for resistance and sacrifice. That's right. That's amazing. Um, you have mentioned that story before, but it wasn't fresh on my mind, so I am so glad you mentioned it again. Um, I think sometimes pastors mean very well when they kind of take the stance of uh, pacifism. And, um, you know, certainly we have the words of Jesus and the apostles, and it, you could easily um, come to the conclusion of a pacifist mentality, but that's not always the case, and you've demonstrated very practically uh, something that worked out here, and it resulted in the saving of many lives of um, fellow fellow Christians and also uh, apparently, like you say, they had targeted a whole other church. So after they're done with automatic weapons and hand grenades, um, and they, and they they intended to torch that church, then they would have moved on to another church and done the same thing. So, um, so I'm stating the obvious or asking the obvious. This man who defended this congregation was it justified use of force? It, it certainly was. I mean, the law of God establishes the basic principle 
of self-defense. Take the case laws of Exodus, Exodus 22 verse 2. If a thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. Now, this is at night. A thief breaks in. It's dark. You can't tell. Does he have a weapon? What's his intentions? You don't know if he's a pedophile, rapist, murderer, whatever, kidnapper. And so even if a thief is found breaking in at night and he's struck, there's no guilt for his bloodshed. So how much more in daylight if a terrorist or murderers or rapist, kidnappers uh, are attacking um, pedophile, uh, trying to attack someone. So uh, the law of God establishes the basic rights of self-defense. And even our Lord Jesus said, he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Luke 22 verse 36. And a sword was the finest weapon of the time. It's like the assault rifle of its day. Uh, In 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 we read, but if anyone does not provide for his own family, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So here we are obviously expected to be uh, using our weapons for self-defense and uh, to, to protect those we love. In fact, the Bible says a man who will not protect his own family is worse than an infidel. Mm. Well, I'd take it further. I'd say such a man is worse than un- an animal because what animal will not fight to protect its own offspring. That is true. That is so true. Oftentimes, as you drive around, you'll see a small bird chasing a large bird. They're very brave, but that large bird had presented a threat to the nest or whatever of the smaller bird, and that small bird will not stop pecking at that bird and dive-bombing them until that larger bird is out of the area. You're right. Even the little animals, they get it. And what's intriguing is the creator has provided his creation with all kinds of weapons. I mean, claws, talons, horns, sharp teeth, stings, venom, or swift wings. So God has provided his his creatures with means for flight or fight or even camouflage in some cases. Self-defense is written into nature. And it's hard to imagine that the creator who has provided his creation with some very elaborate and impressive weaponry uh, that he would expect his blood-bought saints, his own adopted children, to suddenly be doormats. In fact, the scripture says that uh, it is a, a disgrace to falter before the wicked. Proverbs twenty-five twenty-six: a righteous man who falters before the wicked is like a murky spring and a polluted well. Oh, wow. And, and so, Nehemiah, Come on, straightforward. Nehemiah 4 verse 14. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And so throughout the scripture, we we certainly see a biblical principle uh, that we should be defending the defenseless. We should be protecting uh, those who are innocent. And uh, this is written into uh, church law as well. So take, for example, The 39 Articles, which is the foundational statement of the Church of England, Article 37, it is lawful for Christian men to carry weapons. And the Westminster Catechism, which is the foundation of all Presbyterian churches, considered the finest expression of biblical teaching, states under the Sixth Commandment, question 135, the prohibition against murder in the Sixth Commandment requires as our duty all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting, by just defense against violence, protecting and defending the innocent. So that's a straight quote from the Westminster Standards. Hmm. And so we need to understand as Christians, uh, having weapons for self-defense is 
is perfectly natural and acceptable. It's, it's built into creation. And do you know the pioneer missionary, the father of modern missions, William Carey, in his landmark book published in 1792, the inquiry into the obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathen. This is the book that launched the modern missionary movement. It states in section five uh, or chapter five, uh, the, uh, the list of requirements that every missionary should take in the field. Essential equipment includes knives, powder, and shot. In fact, <laughs> William Carey carried knives, powder, and shot to the field. And pioneer missionary and explorer David Livingston, after whom our mission headquarters is named Livingston House. Livingston landed in Africa in 1841 with some of the most advanced weaponry available in the world at that time, yes. including a six-barreled revolver and a double-barreled rifle. And on occasion, he was compelled to use these weapons for protection from wild beasts and to persuade Islamic slave raiders uh, to desist, and he set captives free. At one point, after David Livingston's party had been compelled to shoot back at slave traders who were surrounding him and threatening, Livingston responded to criticism from back home in Britain, saying, I love peace as much as any mortal man. In fact, I go quite beyond you, for I love peace so much I will fight for it. Mm. And, you know, the Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers. And not blessed are the pacifists. It takes action to make peace. And for this reason, I believe it was Colt in American history, actually produced a revolver called the Peacemaker, and that wasn't facetious. <laughs> it, it was understood that you've got to make peace. You're right. I had forgotten all, <laughs> all about that. Well, today we're talking with Dr. Peter Hammond, and uh, he's, a, he's a friend of the ministry, although we've never met in person. Um, he heads up Frontline Fellowship in South Africa, and he's ministered to a lot of the areas around where he's headquartered, which is Cape Town. Um, where do we go from here? we got a few minutes left yet. Uh, here in the States, we have something um, kind of coded, coded into our Constitution, a Bill of Rights, Peter. And the Second Amendment talks about um, the rights that are God-given rights that individuals have that the government shall not infringe. And that Second Amendment doesn't allow us to have weapons uh, like the government is allowing us. No, we already have that right. It just stipulates it and codifies it so that the government does not touch that right. Is anything like that in uh, South Africa? Not as explicit as you have it, although we do have the right to life and to bodily integrity. And there's a whole lot of things that we can construe, but yours is very specific. And, and of course, English legal tradition has always recognized the right of free citizens to possess and carry weapons for self-defense. For example, King Alfred the Great of the ninth century laid the foundation for English common law. And he begins with the Ten Commandments, the whole Ten Commandments, and in the case laws of Exodus as a preamble to the laws. And he includes all kinds of principles from the Sermon on the Mount. And so while abuses like disturbing a meeting by drawing a sword were prohibited, the basic right to keep and bear arms was entrenched in the dooms or the common law of King Alfred. And then the laws of Canute, 11th century, declared self-defense not only to be your right, but your duty. And anyone who fails to assist a person under attack was to be fined. Mm. And if anyone illegally disarmed a man, he was to be fined. Magna Carta, the Great Charter of 1215, the first statute, the first written restriction on the powers of government, the grandfather of all bills of rights. Magna Carta 
guarantees the rights of all free men to keep and bear arms. So the American Bill of Rights and your Second Amendment is is following in an excellent train of English legal tradition, which was rooted in the Bible, as, as I, I read. So even the English Declaration of Rights of 1689 recognized the right of all free men to have and use firearms for self-preservation and self-defense. So uh, all of these foundational principles are key. And if anyone doubts that these historic uh, rights are uh, of relevance, great relevance today, just look at the Rwandan Holocaust. Rwanda was a gun-free zone and the United Nations had helped disarm the people. And the mass murder that was unleashed on the people in Rwanda was a low-tech genocide. I mean, people who think, well, gun-free is the way to go. Well, Rwanda was a gun-free zone. And bear in mind that killing and violence predates the invention of firearms. I mean, if somebody thinks you get rid of the guns, you're suddenly going to have peace. Not so. (laughs) Something like 800,000 people, mostly Christian Tutsi people of minority tribe, were murdered with machetes. I mean, this is a low-tech genocide, only possible because the UN had helped the government disarm the targeted victims first. So limiting the ability of a law-abiding citizen to obtain and use weapons to defend themselves and their families is an open invitation for criminals to attack the defenseless. Yes. Some um, people, some groups, um, at least here in America, are um, trying to make a case uh, against our fundamental right to own a gun uh, in America, um, and they're citing the case of uh, school massacres, where mm. where a a, a, a a bad person comes in and he starts shooting up. Um, but they they're just they're just using that as an opportunity to try to chip away our rights of owning a gun, so that they can take it to the next step. That's my personal feelings of of what they're doing. Yes, I, I think it's very sad when a tragedy is abused for yeah. promoting a political narrative. And I think a lot of these politicians are quite hypocritical because just take Justin Trudeau in Canada, who's saying that no citizen's got a right to keep and bear arms. Well, what he's basically trying to do is only the government will have a monopoly of weapons. Well, it's not good for anyone to have a monopoly, whether no. you're talking about an economy or whether you're talking about education or whether you're talking about weapons. And Justin Trudeau is surrounded by men who are trained and equipped with guns. Yeah. And um, he's going to continue to be surrounded by men with guns for the rest of his life because uh, Biden's surrounded by people with guns and so it is all over the world, heads of state, because they know firearms are very effective means of self-defense. And and yet they want to deprive some poor person down there in wherever it may be of just one weapon to defend themselves. They don't have a layer of security. They can't afford bodyguards. And so if you think that here we've got the Supreme Court protected by men with guns, the uh, Congress protected by men with guns, you've got airports protected by men with guns, but a school is meant to be protected by this is a gun-free zone sticker <laughs> or poster. That's not reasonable. When uh, there were a bunch of Palestinian Liberation Organization terrorist attacks on Jewish schools in Israel back in 1960s, the Israeli government responded not by putting gun-free zone stickers, but by arming the teachers and a whole lot of grandparents who were retired came and sat um, uh, outside the school with a rifle on their knees. That's great. And, uh, and, you know, there never was another school shooting in Israel, I think, since 1971. Wow. So uh, it would seem that arming the teachers and uh, allowing some armed people to be on the property is a far better protection than a gun-free sticker. Yeah. Because 
uh, where are where the mass shootings taking place? And by the way, you know, it's more relevant to say what's the role of drugs uh, in this because apparently people have done studies and found that all of these mass shooters are taking mind-altering drugs. And I think that one needs to look into that because in my country, and I've studied the police reports, the vast majority of murderers are under the influence of drugs or alcohol when they commit their murders. The vast majority of victims of murder are also under the influence of drugs or or uh, alcohol. In South Africa, most murders take place on Friday and Saturday night in and around bars and shabines and places where alcohol is served or drugs. Sure. And most of the victims are taking drugs or alcohol at the time. And that's true for car accidents, domestic abuse, drownings. I can keep. Why don't we look at these things that affect people's minds? But uh, qu- quite aside from that, when you consider uh, the, the targeting of the schools, where are mass shootings taking place? Not at rifle ranges, not at uh, police stations. Right. They're not taking place at gun shows. They're taking place in gun-free zones like a shopping mall or a school. So I would say let's rather follow Switzerland's strategy. Switzerland is the country that's got the highest uh, percentage of weapons, uh, percentage of the population. Uh, they believe if you want peace, you prepare for war. Sure. And I've been in homes in Switzerland. I mean, just take, for example, uh, I was at a, a lovely mission station in the Alps, and I look across the table at a young, healthy young man. I said, are you in the army? And he laughed and said, of course, we're all in the army. Switzerland doesn't have an army. Switzerland has an army. So I said, how long would it take you uh, to get ready for war? And he said, I'm not sure. I said, can I time you? He said, starting when? I said, now. Well, five minutes, 20 seconds later, he's back, fully kitted out, um, <laughs> boots laced up, um, rifled ready, magazine in, bayonet attached, yes. and so on. And uh, his sister got all excited, and she pulled out a few other weapons. And this was a little apartment. It wasn't even a house. <laughs> and yeah, a little sure. apartment on a mission station. And they had all kinds of weaponry, even anti-tank weapons. So um, Switzerland, you would think, uh, would be a violent, lawless country if guns caused f- f- crime. But no, um, every citizen has weapons of war stored in their home. But despite having millions of military-grade weapons, uh, uh, in private homes, overall firearm abuse in Switzerland is so low to be insignificant. And they've got the lowest burglary and murder rates in the industrial world. Home invasions are unknown in Switzerland. Can't imagine why. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> th- this, here's another fact. At the end of the Second World War, tens of millions of soldiers returned home. And uh, they brought home millions of weapons, uh, many of them captured souvenirs. But not only that, there were millions of surplus firearms sold in the open market. In South Africa, the government here sold 303 bolt-action rifles, which are now considered um, uh, no longer uh, what they were after, they're now after automatic weapons. They sold 303 rifles for two rand each. Now, that actually was a one US dollar for a bolt-action rifle, and each came with a crate of free ammunition as well. And do you know... All over the world, after 1945, violence went down, dramatically plummeted oh, yeah. when the soldiers returned from war. So the weapons and soldiers didn't cause the, the violence. What caused the violence? Well, the advent of the permissive society in the 60s and 70s, lowered church attendance, explosion of the drug culture, the sexual revolution, yes. then violent crime increased. So I think we need to recognize guns don't cause crime. 
people in rebellion against the laws of God, that causes crime and violence. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned that, and it's a wonderful note to pretty soon we'll have to wrap it up and end on. Um, But you also reminded me of something. Um, We live in the mid-Hudson Valley of New York State in in America. Today we're talking with uh, Peter Hammond, who's in South Africa. But not far from here, Peter, was a company called uh, Auto Ordnance uh, in West Hurley, New York. And they built and marketed the Thompson semi-auto and also full-auto machine gun. And so it, it's an amazing thing that um, there's still some fellas out there today that has one of these. you got to get a special license or whatever, but um, I wish they still made them. I think that's great. It, it shot the uh, uh, Centerfire uh, 45 ACP, which is a great, sturdy round. It's not too fast compared to the modern rounds, but it had a lot of knockdown. Um, wrap it up, Peter, um, in the next uh, minute or so, and give us a web address, please. Certainly. So every day, countless crimes are prevented and hundreds of lives are protected. Many tragedies averted by armed citizens. Armed citizens can save lives, but unarmed citizens all too often become helpless victims. I've written about all this in Security and Survival Handbook, and that's also available as a print-on-demand or ebook, Security and Survival Handbook. And I've documented my 40 years of missions in the field, frontline, behind enemy lines for Christ, all the different things we've seen in the field, what we've learned, resistance against communism and terrorism. So my email, peter at frontline.org.za, peter at frontline.org.za, and our web address is www.frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa.org. Thank you so much, Dan. Oh, it's beautiful. Peter, what an honor to talk with you, and thank you so much for spending your time with our listeners today. May God bless you and prosper you. I know it's been hard since you lost your wife, and we pray for you uh, as the Lord brings you to mind. So hang in there, my brother. Thank you, Dan. God bless and keep strong. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. <laughs> 